0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are here because you love us. You have set us apart to be your unique people, people who are unique from the world around us, even strange to the kingdom of this world. We are strange because we do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, we fear you and you preserve our souls. We are strange because we are not confused about the chaos in the world. Rather, we have clarity that you are giving those who are opposed to you over to the destruction that lies waiting in their sin. Thank you for revealing to us that you are already pronouncing judgment on the sin in this world. We see in our own lives, Lord, that your law is good and wise. You save a humble people, but you bring down the prideful we see that we follow your ways that when we follow your ways we know the peace that is found in you we see that when we stray from your ways we bring judgment onto ourselves so we mourn and repent lord for when we have not been merciful to one another we are all your servants by your mercy with every breath proof of your mercy so let our words and actions be filled with mercy we mourn and repent, Lord, for when we have not kept ourselves unstained by the world. You are clear that we are your temple, you abide in us, and there is no room for unrighteousness in your holy place. So help us to all resist impurity and to embrace the purity granted to us in Christ. Lord, we pray for other gospel-proclaiming churches, those far from us and those near. Let, let us all be beacons of your glory to the world around us. Stir us up to worship that is whole. Specifically, we pray for the Well Church in Portland. Help the congregation to serve one another, following the example given by Christ to lay down their lives for each other. We pray that their pastor, CJ Coffey, and the other elders would be lead servants, laying aside anything that would hinder their ability to model Christ's servant leadership Give them a joy in their labors for the sake of the church. Father, we all in some way are walking through suffering, whether it's health or relationships, unmet needs or desires. We feel intensely that the royal announcement that's been made and initiated has not come in its fullness. Your full reign is still to come. So, Lord, have mercy on us, meet us in our suffering, that we can know your compassion for us and our frailty. In the preaching of your word now, strengthen our faith that you have promised to preserve us until the day you bring your kingdom in its fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Thanks, Ryan, you guys can have a seat.
1: Well, if you can turn to Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19, that's where we're gonna be this morning. Our world loves the idea of justice. We see this everywhere. The idea of justice underlines news headlines. It's everywhere on social media. And we even see this idea of justice in the midst of marketing campaigns. Every retailer wanting to seem righteous in their business dealings to the point where they create advertisements that say nothing about their product, but sure do tug on the heartstrings. You notice that? You watch an advertisement for a while and you go, I don't even know what this is about, but boy, I sure feel good. (laughs) We see the idea of justice verbalized in every political campaign, knowing it will never come about. And it is a core ideal of the mob-based righteousness and justice that has become more prominent in the last few years. No one can truly identify what righteousness is from this mob mentality and what it looks like, but the mob can definitely tell you what it does not look like, which is anything the mob disagrees with. Our society is no different than the old image of peasants with torches and pitchforks. We've just sanitized it by using phones and social media and the internet. You see, this idea of justice is merely a shell of true biblical justice, the truth of God's justice. Because at its heart, this worldly justice can only leave an imbalanced justice, which is no justice at all. True justice is the shalom that only God can bring as the ultimate king and judge where unrepentant sin is dealt with And repentance is met with forgiveness and restoration. You see, his justice has both rightful punishment and forgiveness. But the justice peddled in the public square only has one or the other. It's imbalanced. One form revels in vengeance against the oppressors and elevation of the oppressed. But it has no means of repentance and no hope of forgiveness. It simply leaves the guilty in their guilt. And guilt is assumed based on outward appearance and association. The result of this worldly form of justice is not a correction, but simply a reversal of hatred and oppression, with a delusion that this reversal will actually result in true shalom and peace. It actually restores nothing. Now, I would love to say that this is not the case in the church, but across much of the global church, self-professed disciples have been snared by the same alluring hook and are being dragged in the same direction. Righteousness and justice is not defined by God, but by what makes sense to me, as I'm persuaded by the mob. And for those who do not follow this leading, many in the church are misled in another direction. Just as the world has taken hold of a supposed justice By way of embracing wrath without the possibility of forgiveness, much of the church has taken hold of a different perversion of justice by embracing forgiveness without repentance. Now this, as the early church fathers proclaimed it, is a heresy called antinomianism, which preaches that sin can abound so that grace can abound all the more. We can keep on sinning in unacknowledged, or in acknowledged unrepentance but God will still keep forgiving us. This is a forgive and forget mentality that undercuts and omits Christ's call to discipline ourselves within the new covenant community of faith, and ultimately, it undercuts Christ's authority as well. You see, dear brothers and sisters, the true justice of which the Bible speaks is not misaligned or out of balance. It carries with it both wrath of God that will be poured out on all who rebel against him and his law of love, as well as a means of repentance and the accompanying forgiveness that shows God's mercy and grace. It is perfectly balanced. We dismantle and pervert this idea because ultimately we want to reign and pour out a false justice that places ourselves on the throne with all others worshiping at our feet. Praise God for the clarity of his word that cuts through our delusions and our foolishness to bring us the truth of righteousness and justice. Such is the case with our text this morning. We have experienced the first six trumpets and the interlude in which the church was given its marching orders to be God's prophetic witness through the gospel. And now we come to the seventh trumpet, but this last trumpet is interesting in what it reveals and what it doesn't reveal. Just as in chapter eight, we will be left with many questions and a lack of understanding of what's going on, there's not a ton of detail here. We're given hints and clues as to what is occurring, but we will intentionally be left with a thirst for more clarity and more information and more detail. What we are given, as with the seventh seal, is simply a glimpse into the immediate after-effects of the resurrection and judgment of all humanity. We will not gain more clarity on this event until later chapters as we continue to wind through that corkscrew movement we've talked about in the midst of Revelation. But what we will see this morning What we will gather is enough of an understanding of what Christ's resurrection and judgment of humanity will accomplish, that it will lead us in worship of his perfect holiness and just reign. And it will cause us to yearn all the more for his kingdom to come in fullness. Because then, and only then, will true justice be accomplished and true shalom will be restored. What's interesting is most likely at that point, many of the people who are calling for earthly justice today will be very disappointed. Now this future assured hope will give us, as it gave the first century Christians, an understanding that will cause us to stand firm in whatever chaos comes our way. We will understand that the balanced justice of God will come, the perfect justice that brings perfect peace. And so this morning... We will see that that judgment day will see justice accomplished and covenant consummated. We'll see that judgment day will see justice accomplished and covenant consummated. Let's go ahead and read our text in Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. Bless you. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. As the seventh trumpet is sounded, we first see the royal announcement of Christ's kingdom. The royal announcement of Christ's kingdom. There, just in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We finished up the first section of chapter 11, the interlude in which the church is seen resurrecting to the presence of God, and an earthquake comes upon the entire earth. And the world, captured in this symbolism of the great city Babylon, feels the warning judgment of God's wrath, and it elicits terror and a cry of recognition of God's authority to give judgment. And then we have this final statement in verse 14 that is left hanging with anticipation. It says there, right before the section we're in this morning, the second woe has passed, and behold, the third woe is soon to come. The first two woes were seen in the fifth and sixth trumpets, but here the third woe is coming and is captured in the seventh trumpet. But admittedly, the detail of the judgment is not explicitly described. We see this woe coming, and we think, whoa, what is it going to be, right? The detail isn't quite here. It's as if John, the author, is wanting us to lean in further for what is to come in Revelation that will describe this final woe in great detail. But what we do know is that this woe is describing the judgment of the nations, and the playing out in fullness of the wrath of God on an unrepentant, wicked group of people that are still on the earth. It's as if there is an intentional blank spot between verses 14 and 15 that John will fill in the detail later. And he'll do so in chapters 19 through 22, but here we are simply given the seventh trumpet and we see the afterglow, if you will, the after effects of the resurrection and the judgment. And we know this because of all of the grammatical tenses of this statement, especially the verbs in our text from today. They're all in the past tense. You notice that? The action has already been accomplished by the time we get to verse 15. For example, it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And in the statements below that, the statements of judgment are in the past tense. And so why is this then considered the woe? Wouldn't the detail of the resurrection and judgment be the woe that we will see later in Revelation? Well, from the standpoint of a Christian, yes, but recognize, dear friends, that from the standpoint of the world and a humanity that has forcefully attempted to take individual sovereignty into their own hands, the worst possible outcome, the greatest woe, is that their sovereignty, even though it's false, has been squashed once and for all. That's the greatest woe that a rebellious heart could find. The worst outcome is that the sovereign Lord against whom they have been rebelling their entire life is now very much materially the greatest authority in their life. And that authority has fully manifested itself into their created realm. Imagine fooling yourself for 60, 70, 80, 90 years that you are the king And then it all goes away in an instant when you stand before the throne of Christ. Could there be a greater woe to the rebellious heart? This announcement from the voices in heaven is making the royal declaration that the redemptive plan of God has come to fruition. Now, many self proclaimed Christians think the plan of God is centered upon themselves and God's plan for their life, that all of eternity was wrapped up into the moment they said the sinner's prayer. But that is a misunderstanding of God's redemptive plan. You see, he is the main character, and we are simply the extras that get the blessing and honor of participating in his grand drama of redemption. It is to this moment that all prophetic history points, this moment before us in our text. Think of the Davidic covenant that God promised to David and his offspring that we read earlier from Jeremiah. This is from Jeremiah 33, 15 through 18. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. This is speaking of an eternal king, an eternal high priest, an eternal sacrifice. Those things can only be accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This promise of both a perfect king and a perfect priest, it only comes in Jesus. There is no work we can do on this earth that will accomplish this level of justice. And this is the purpose and plan of all history, friends, including our part in it, this place where God is the rightful Lord and King over his creation. And that could have only come from that same King being the perfect sacrifice for sin to pave the way for him to be exalted. God's rule that was pushed aside at the fall and at the entrance of original sin is pictured here as finally, once again, being established in the midst of creation. The way in which this happened and made it possible is in the next few verses. How does he execute the justice that is even in that promise in Jeremiah? It's spelled out in the next few verses. But here, just in verse 15, we see simply that it has been accomplished. It has occurred. It is a reality at this point that cannot be undone. It is final. We're standing here in our text today on the other side of that judgment, looking at it and understanding what it has accomplished. And the fact that it is final means God's exercised authority of judgment is final. There is no do-over at that point. Now, this does not mean that God is not or has not been sovereign over the events of the world. It's not like he suddenly comes in to that position of kingship, never having been in authority before. That's not what this is saying. It means that in the original fall, he allowed mankind to hand over the kingdoms of the world, and the authority of the nations that they had been given, that we had been given, to the very adversary of God, Ha-Satan, that great serpent, Satan himself. And if you recall, Satan attempted to draw Christ into this rebellion by offering him the kingdoms of the world if he would simply cut off his allegiance to the Father. You recall this from Matthew 4, 8-10. through 10. In Matthew 4, 8 through 10, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Christ's response is faithfulness and allegiance to the Father. The end result is that Christ does receive the nations, but he does so. Not to his own glory, but to the glory of the Father, to the glory of the triune God. The original hearers of Revelation 11 would be tempted, as many of us are today, to give in to the draw of the world, just as Satan tempted Jesus, to give in to the kingdoms of the nations, to feel at home in this present kingdom of darkness, rather than to withdraw from it and instead stand firmly in God's kingdom while being a missionary and ambassador here in this world. The hope that this assurity provides that one day the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord, this provides an assurance that would have given the first century Christians as well as it gives us endurance in our allegiance to Christ, even when the world is upside down. But it would also give them confidence in the goodness of God. For it's hard to see the goodness of God when you are suffering and those in the world are suffering. But you see, God has providentially allowed Satan to have limited authority in the world, and that has caused the suffering throughout history that God has compassionately used as a warning to draw unrepentant mankind to himself. But all the while, this text gives us assurance that he is not pleased or satisfied with that suffering. Yes, he is sovereign over it, and he allows it. While he uses this suffering to work out his providential will, it is not his ultimate end for his creation. And so the storyline given throughout the Bible is that all of God's work, and really all of human history, is pointing forward to this day upon which God is able to provide fullness of restoration and establish his reign over his creation. This gives us assurance that we follow a good God. He does not revel in the death of the wicked, nor the suffering of his creation. He allows it. He is sovereign over it. But it is not the end that he is moving towards. This, brothers and sisters, is the great hope of God's redemption and restoration of his creation. This is the peace, the shalom that we look for, that all of mankind desires. This is what we pray for, or should be praying for, Think with me about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray this way, and core to this prayer is the desire that his kingdom will come, as it does here in Revelation eleven fifteen, That the abode and authority of God would be one with the abode of mankind. There is truth in the interpretation of this prayer that we, as his people, should act out his law of love in a way that we operate in this world. But recognize that ultimately and primarily what we are crying out for in this prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us, is that he would return and that he would set things right and that he, in the meantime, would be in the midst of his people. We pray for him to return so that he would judge the wicked, and forgive the repentant, and that he would operate through his Holy Spirit within the temple of his church to cause us to exist within his perfect will and reign. And this is why, dear friends, as we saw last Sunday in the first portion of chapter 11, the primary call of the church is not to go out and fix the world. It is not primarily to affect social change. It is not to change the mind of the lost or impose our will upon them. Friends, none of that will ever work in the end. The wicked will go from bad to worse, and no amount of social work or social justice will ever change that. Our primary mission as the church and as disciples of Jesus is to call people out of the world to repentance through the gospel and to draw them into the covenant community of Christ's reign so that they might grow in sanctification and go back out into the world to proclaim the gospel. All the while, we know that we are on a rescue mission because it is only God who will do the ultimate restoration. So we are drawing people before that judgment day comes. And so our primary works of care for the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, they're to happen within God's covenant community. And that is how we show that we are a set-apart people. And then, as we have means and ability and opportunity, we do good to all people. We let that overflow out of the community. But friends, recognize in the midst of that that the church is not intended to save nor fix the world, nor are we meant to draw away from the world and hide. We don't do either of those things. What we recognize in preaching the gospel is that it is the Lord alone that will restore and save And it will only be truly restored when his kingdom comes in fullness. And so we therefore go throughout the world proclaiming that he is coming again. That this will happen one day as we see in verse 15. And so we call all to turn to him in worship in preparation for judgment day. Friends, how often do you use the idea of this judgment day to motivate your evangelism and to draw others in repentance? Do you tell people that there is a judgment day coming and they want to be on the other side in this text, looking at Christ as king, not just as judge? Because one day we will all face the judgment seat of God and it is there that the true justice will take place. Not the shallow justice that the world wants, not the imbalanced justice that the world promotes, but the true justice of God because it's based on God's perfect righteousness. And that's what's described next as we look to the next section in verses 16 through 18, and there we see thanksgiving for the accomplishment of God's true justice. Thanksgiving for the accomplishment of God's true justice. Look there in verses 16 through 18. It says in the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Notice the tenses again. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. If verse 15 is the announcement of what has happened, that the Lord's kingdom has come, this next three verses is the explanation of how it has happened. How is it that the authority of our Lord and his Christ has fully come to bear at this time? How has his kingdom come? The psalmist said in Psalm 89 that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And here, what we will see is that God has executed his authority to bring justice in judgment. We are again presented with a vision of 24 elders sitting on their thrones, and whether this is an angelic council referred to in Job or whether these are angelic representative of God's old and new covenant people, we're not sure. It might even be a combination of the two, but it is clear that they have an important voice and they speak as if it is the fullness of the covenant people of God speaking. And so we see them leave their thrones and show ultimate submission to the triune God, bowing before him, and they proclaim their thanksgiving for what has been accomplished. Friends, this is our eternity, declaring thanksgiving for what will be accomplished. When we stand in this place on the other side of judgment, we will want to do nothing but give thanks and praise to God. We first see that they address God very purposefully, They first address him in his highest authoritative authoritative title, Lord, God, Almighty. Lord is a statement of rule and submission. God is a statement of their proper place as his created beings. And Almighty is a statement of his ultimate sovereign and providential power. Lord, God, Almighty. Should we pause there and ask, if he has that title in your life and mine, Lord God Almighty. But next they point out his eternal nature. But notice that something is missing. They speak of his current presence and his eternal past presence, but there is no statement of the future. Now, this is in total contrast to what's been presented earlier in Revelation. Uh, We can look at this next slide and see uh, in verses uh, 4 and 8 of chapter 1, And chapter 4, verse 8, in all of those cases, when Jesus is described, it's him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In 4.8, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is how we know that we're looking at something different here with this seventh trumpet in Revelation 11. For there is no statement of a future coming because this vision captures the time When that advent, that coming, will have already occurred and be complete. He is here just referred to as who is and who was. And it is in that coming, the next phrase states, that God has used his power to begin to reign in his fulfilled kingdom. When we stand at this point, the future will have already arrived in that moment. There is no more study of the last things because the last things will have happened. The voices then declare how he has taken his great power. In other words, how he has exercised his sovereign authority. He did this through the balance of his justice that contains both forgiveness for the redeemed and judgment for the unrepentant. We see the vision as if we are standing on this backside of judgment. And we see here that he poured out his wrath on the rebellious nations who raged at his authority. And he likewise destroyed those angelic beings and divine beings who were the causal force behind the rebellion, being destroyers themselves. And he grants forgiveness and eternal life only by his mercy and grace to those undeserving elect whom he has rescued from his wrath by the blood of his son. This declaration of thanksgiving is very much in the structure and spirit of a victory song similar to what we've already seen in Revelation You can also think of it as modeled after the victory song of Moses, after God defeated the Egyptian enemies of Israel. Notice this victory song of Revelation 11 has the balance of justice in both the redemption of God's people and the wrathful judgment upon those who would rather stand in their rebellion, even in the midst of terror, as we saw in verse 13, rather than submit to the covenantal authority of God. So let's unpack each of these in our Revelation text. First, we see the very obvious link to the well-known messianic psalm, Psalm 2, that the nations raged. Would you turn there in your Bible with me to Psalm 2? Keep your finger in Revelation. We'll come back quickly. But go to Psalm 2. With New Testament hindsight, we can look back as the apostles do throughout the New Testament And know that this that we're about to read is fulfilled in Christ. Take a look in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Man, this sounds like CNN and Fox News right now, doesn't it? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see, We might think in terms of Putin or other world leaders. They think that they're going against other humans, but in actuality, they're setting themselves up as rulers over and above the one true ruler. It says, verse 3, "'Let us burst their bonds apart "'and cast away their cords from us. "'He who sits in the heavens laughs. "'The Lord holds them in derision. "'Then he will speak to them in his wrath.'" Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Going back to Revelation 11, we see that the nations, in the time between Psalm 2 and the judgment day that will come, the nations have never repented. The kings of the earth have taken counsel from only themselves, and it has led to their demise. They've repeated the same stupid history over and over and over again. And rather than turning in worship to the ultimate authority from whom their authority is derived, they have continued in their rebellion, setting themselves up as ultimate ruler. And so the words of the psalmist have proven true. God is angry at their rebellion And lack of repentance, and his wrath will be kindled, and they will perish in the way and those who follow them. Friends, this is the fate that awaits every person who refuses to submit themselves to the lordship of Christ. One might think they are holding off judgment, but every time you refuse the lordship of Christ, every moment, every Sunday, you are simply storing up judgment for yourself. Paul sums this same thing up when he says this in Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you are hearing this sermon this morning here in the building or even online, and you have not given your life over to the lordship of Christ, if you are your own authority picking and choosing what you think the Bible should say and disagreeing with his rule and reign and law of love, existing within your own kingdom. This is your fate at judgment day. So I beg of you, turn to Christ and repent. All those who refuse the lordship of Christ will stand amidst his wrath on judgment day. Second, though, we also see this wrath coming to bear on the destroyers of the earth. Our immediate context within Revelation recalls to mind Revelation 9, where we saw the demonic hordes led by the ultimate destroyer, Abaddon or Apollyon, which are the names in both Greek and Hebrew that mean destroyer. This phrase is meant to encapsulate the final judgment that will come upon all the angelic and spiritual beings who rebelled against God's reign. And we will see great detail on this topic as we come closer to the conclusion of the book, But in the meantime, we can simply trust that the destroyers, including Satan and his minions, and death itself, the greatest destroyer, will all be conquered under Christ's power. They will be destroyed and have no impact on his creation ever again. And then sandwiched in between these two punitive judgments, destroying the destroyers of the earth, and wrath coming upon the nations that rage, between these two pieces of bread, if you will, in judgment, We have the center. We see that God will reward those who are his own. And this is not a reward that comes from our merit. There is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can earn. This includes the prophets and saints and those who bear prophetic witness to his gospel and those who fear the name of God. And fear here is to give authority as a child would to a parent or a citizen would to a king. And the good news is that there is no hierarchy in who he rewards, but he will reward both small and great in the kingdom of God. You see his justice being poured out even in this, his perfect, balanced justice. Notice that the reward of God's people is the center of this judgment sandwich, if you will. Not to demean it all, but that's what it seems like. On either side of the judgment of wicked mankind and wicked angels, uh, in the center, we have this forgiveness. And this is the reason that every person who exists in God's kingdom will be content with their reward. When we see the wages of our sin is death and what we deserve is eternal separation from the very God whom we have rebelled against, we will be eternally grateful and thankful as these loud voices are for the reward that we do not deserve, but have merely been given because of the grace of our creator. See, friends, we don't deserve the forgiveness that we have been given. And that is why our thanks will ring throughout all eternity. We did not deserve it. And yet, by your grace, you gave it to us. I had a great conversation with my kids the other night. And it was really interesting. It's cool to see the cogs kind of click and the things click in for them. And one of the things that came up was, What will happen to those who don't follow the Lordship of Christ? And one of my kiddos looked at me with horror on their face, and they said, wait, I think I understand. Everybody who doesn't follow Jesus is going to end up away from God and in hell. And I said, yes. And there was horror on his face. And he said, why aren't we telling more people? I wonder if we as adults have forgotten that truth. Or maybe we just don't believe it. We say we do, but functionally we don't. You see, all of humanity deserves eternal destruction. By God's grace, he has replaced our rebellious heart with his spirit, and he has converted us to be his people with an affection for his reign in our lives. And this could have only been accomplished by Christ, substituting himself in our place under the wrath of God, that was meant for us, but was poured out on him as a scapegoat and a purifying sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And when we are confronted with our sinful hearts and actions, we recognize that we deserve the same destruction meted out to the wicked. But The graciousness of Christ has spared us from what we deserve. The reward of eternal life and existing in the presence of our Creator the source of all life and love, that is what we will be given and that is all we will need. And the knowledge that that is awaiting us by God's grace and not our own merit is what should drive us to be evangelists, preaching the graciousness of God. You see, friends, God's justice, unlike the false notion of justice we look for in this world, is perfectly balanced. It is based not on any one individual's self-centered view of justice, nor on any mob's misappropriated authority to bring justice. But it's based upon God's just character that is transcendent. His character is above any impurity that could taint his righteousness. It has consequences for rebellion against his set law, and it has gracious forgiveness for those who repent and lay down their authority at the base of the throne of Christ. This is why the throne of God is founded in righteousness and justice, because it has the balance of forgiveness and judgment for sin. It was this eternal forgiveness and vindication of persecution that would have been salved to the wounds of the early church as they suffered martyrdom far worse than we can imagine here in the United States. And as they cried out to God, how long, O Lord? In this section of Revelation 11, we are seeing the very answer of God in mercy and grace to the prayers of the martyred saints across the ages, but specifically from Revelation 6.10. You recall that in Revelation 6.10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. You can imagine the first century saints hearing this portion of Revelation and thinking, I get it, that resonates with me. I have watched my friends and my family members be martyred and killed, and I am persecuted. How long, O Lord? And we come to Revelation 11, and it's salve to a wounded soul. That is how long. Lord, you will accomplish your justice, and I can trust in you. And it should be that same salve to our souls in 2022. Christ is assuring his church through the vision he has given John that their prayers, that our prayers for vindication and justice will be answered. This was a much-needed understanding to help the early church endure. But notice that rather than taking the frustration of all the pent-up anger because of the persecution and because of the injustice in the world, there's not a glorying in the death of the wicked. Finally, they'll get theirs. But no, there is a sadness, there is a brokenheartedness at the fact that what awaits sinners is eternity in hell. David even said this in one of his psalms. He said, I have all this anger towards my enemies, and then I remembered their end. This compassion should drive us, as we've been seeing over the last few chapters, to take the gospel to the world. Paul similarly summarizes this accomplished justice that we see here in Revelation 11 in his second letter to the church at Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10, we read this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Maybe you feel the same at times, wondering if the Lord will stay true to his covenant. But Jesus is assuring the church here that his promises will come to pass. And the final portion of the vision assures the church that he will not forget his covenant promises. For in this last section of our text today, we see the sign of God's consummated covenant. The sign of God's consummated covenant. This is in verse 19. In verse 19, we read, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. You probably remember this ark of the covenant as the central fixture in the tabernacle, and later Solomon's temple. Or at least you remember it in the Indiana Jones movie, one or the other. It was the place where the Shekinah glory of God, the tangible presence of God, dwelt among his people. Its lid, which bore two angelic beings with wings outstretched, was referred to as the mercy seat, as God's throne on earth and as the footstool of his heavenly throne room. It was seen as a visible sign that God dwelt with his people, even to the point that it was wrongly worshipped at a certain point in an idolatrous sense. But it was especially known for a few other things which help us understand the importance of its sighting in this vision. Let me give those to you. First, It was the holding place of the written covenant of God's relationship with his people. It held a jar of manna, the budding rod of Aaron, and the tablets of the Ten Commandments. All of these were to be signs to the people of God that he would remain faithful in his covenant promises. It became the place where Israel could dwell in intimacy with God through their intermediary, Moses, and later the high priest. And so the fact that John is now seeing it in the midst of the heavenly temple that was measured out in the first verses of chapter 11, confirms God's covenant faithfulness amidst his people, as if to say, the covenant is complete and it will never be moved. That's the first thing that we see, that the covenant is complete and it will never be moved. There is no need for an additional neo-new covenant because the new covenant is perfect and it will never be moved. But second, it was a symbol of military victory. Over the enemies of God. It was part of the procession that marched around Jericho, for example. It became such a symbol of victory for Israel that they eventually believed that the power for victory was not in their covenant faithfulness to God, symbolized in the ark, but in the power of the ark itself. But nevertheless, it was a symbol of the victorious power of God. Here, for example, Moses' words in Numbers 10:35. And whenever the ark sets out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. So, the fact that John is now seeing it in the heavenly temple speaks to the fact that victory has been achieved over all the enemies of God. Victory has been achieved over all the enemies of God. And yet, his covenant remains strong within his people. His covenant remains strong. The covenant is complete, will never be moved, and victory has been achieved over all the enemies of God. Third, it was a symbol of leading through the wilderness. In the Torah, as well as in Joshua, there are multiple stories of the sign of movement for the camp being when God commanded the ark to be moved. It would move the ark and the company would follow. The stability of it within the earthly temple in the midst of the promised land gave the people a sense of security. It is steadfast. it is placed. And when it disappeared at the invasion of the Babylonians, it left the people of Israel with a sense of dread. And still today, there are a dozen or so conspiracy theories about the ark being hidden away somewhere. Perhaps John was writing to say here, its movement is complete. And the day of judgment will show that there are no more wilderness wanderings for the people of God. There are no more wilderness wanderings for the people of God. We are secure in the sanctuary of God for all time. And the imagery of the wilderness wanderings will be used a great deal in the next chapter. So hold on to this one. But here he is saying, there is no more wilderness wandering for the people of God. The covenant is secure, his enemies are destroyed, and there is no more wilderness wanderings. But fourth, and probably most importantly, is the ark's connection to the high holy day of the Jewish calendar, the day of atonement. For it was on that day, out of the Jewish calendar, that the high priest, after offering sacrifice for his own sin and sacrifice for the people of Israel, could enter through the barrier of the veil into the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And there he would take the blood of the sacrificial offering and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat as purification for God's people and as a sign of God's forgiveness for their sin. This, we know, was simply a picture of the purification to come at the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For it was his blood that would purify the heavenly tabernacle on behalf of his covenant people. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 9 with me and we'll see how the author of Hebrews makes this clear. Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 18 through 28. It says there, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, that book being the covenant, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The fact that the ark is visible in our text in Revelation 11, in the midst of John's vision, on the other side of Judgment Day, declares once and for all that the covenant relationship between God and his people is set and secure, The purification of Christ has been perfectly effective and the redemptive plan has been completed. The enemies of God have been dealt with in victory. The persecution of his people has been vindicated and his people have been drawn into his presence. In fact, his presence, his very mercy seat, now dwells in the midst of them as they are symbolized by the heavenly temple of God. And so forth and lastly, the ark being present in the heavens in John's vision shows that God and his people are intimately one, never to be separated. Can you wait for that day? God and his people, intimately one, never to be separated. I can't wait for that day. Lord, come quickly. John provides the finishing touch to his vision back in Revelation 11 by finalizing the scene with flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. As seen throughout apocalyptic literature in the Bible, Just as it was literally seen on Mount Sinai, these symbols speak to the fullness of the presence of God and his cosmic power that undoes the very pillars of his created order. He is fully amidst his people and his judgment has come completely in Revelation 11. All is truly finished. For any more detail on this judgment day, we will have to wait patiently as we proceed in the midst of the corkscrew pattern of progressive recapitulation in the rest of the book. Brothers and sisters, this judgment day that is coming is a foregone conclusion. It will happen. And because of the work of Christ, we have forgiveness from sin and access to the fullness of his covenant love and relationship. And in addition, we have proof that that judgment will occur. When someone resurrects from the dead and says judgment day is coming, we believe it. The depth of that relationship that we have with God on that day will be consummated. And justice, which this world longs for but does not fully understand, will be complete because those who have rebelled against God and caused destruction to his created order will finally reap the fruit of their rebellion. Now there is no better way to conclude this vision in Revelation and to apply this vision than to hear the words of the conclusion of the author of Hebrews that he has, or she has, we don't know who the author is, as a result of these truths. And so, would you look at Hebrews 10, 21 with me? Hopefully you're still there in Hebrews, 10, 21 through 25. And we will see what the author of Hebrews says to the church as an application of all these truths. And we can apply it for ourselves. Hebrews 10, 21 through 25. Let's actually start in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, let us be a church that holds fast in our confession of faith, that stirs one another up to love and good works because of the reality of these truths and the judgment day to come. Let us be a church that sees the priority that our common faith and practice of worship has in proclaiming these truths. And let us be a church that encourages one another in the hope of the gospel and the coming resurrection with every passing day. How much more do we need this in the chaos of the world that surrounds us? You see, Judgment Day will see justice accomplished and covenant consummated. Let's hold that hope in focus and let it guide all that we do and all that we proclaim. Amen? Amen. Amen.